Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. Welcome to AC4 Conversations. This is a show that's hosted by WKCR, Columbia University's radio station. And I'm Meredith Smith from AC4, and I'm delighted to be here today with Stephen Gray and to have a conversation about Myanmar and innovation in peace building. We, um, I think, have a lot of things that we're going to cover in this conversation, and I want to introduce Stephen Gray, who is a very kind and intelligent and accomplished individual that I have um, here in WKCR station with me. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Meredith. Thanks for having me, and thank you for setting me up with those compliments about being kind <laughs> and intelligent. Now I'm going to disappoint all of your listeners. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for uh, welcoming me back up to Columbia. Yes, so um, for our listeners, I'll give an introduction about Stephen and um, his background. So Stephen is a practitioner, author, and entrepreneur in the field of international conflict resolution. After five years as a practitioner in Myanmar, uh, much of his current work involves applied research and advice to international organizations, international nonprofit organizations, and public and private donors and where possible, uh, incorporating complexity theory and systems thinking. Stephen um, is a strategic advisor and the director of ADAPT Research and Consulting. And I met Stephen and came across his work for the first time in 2015 at Columbia University, actually at the Sustaining Peace Forum, which is an annual conference that takes place on campus. And um, Stephen, along with his wife, Josephine Roos, who is also in the international peace building work, um, gave a talk about their work in Myanmar. And um, we'll talk probably more about that in this conversation. But I just wanted to mention also how um, a couple other elements about Stephen that people might find interesting, that he's a New Zealander and has worked for the New Zealand government, the UN, uh, Columbia University, international NGOs, which is um, where much of his work as a consultant is, and he loves to travel and live in exotic places. <laughs> and um, he's lived in about five different countries and has traveled to more than 60. And he has a very interesting career. And I'm really excited to have him on the show and to talk about his work. So um, you've lived in New York before, after being in Myanmar for a while, you're just returning. So welcome so much to back to Columbia University and to WKCR. Thank you so much, Meredith. Yeah, it's fantastic to be back. Um, so I was at here at Columbia at SEPA from 2009 to 2011 and uh, then left for a number of years. So coming back, I kind of have these wonderful memories, uh, and then I have some kind of haunting memories about getting stuck in libraries and <laughs> just weeks and weeks of study. But it's wonderful to be back in New York City as well, and we're adapting to a very different lifestyle from Myanmar, uh, as you can imagine, uh, but it's been a wonderful transition being back. Can you tell me a, a bit more about your background and your trajectory to SIPA and also going to Myanmar? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, I had a bit of a falling in love experience with New York in 2007. Um, I had been working for the New Zealand government and um, I just really didn't enjoy being stuck in the office for a long time and I tended to take these very long vacations uh, that I would travel to exotic places and it occurred to me I want to uh, try and combine these things uh, and I was lucky enough to get an internship at the New Zealand Mission to the United Nations, fell in love with New York, I, I really did and there was only one 
grad program that I was ever going to apply to. Uh, it took a couple of goes, but I, I got into SEPA uh, and then had a fantastic experience. Going to SEPA, um, the style of, of teaching, very practical, a lot of uh, capstone and practical coursework to prepare people for careers in international affairs. And after that, um, I did a, some work with uh, Peter Coleman and his group looking specifically at systems and complexity approaches. And for me, that was a real light bulb turning on because we'd been going to these lectures telling us, uh, and this is a huge simplification, but the world is either realist or it's liberal or it's constructivist. And a lot of it seemed like it was lacking uh, nuance and appreciation of complexity and how each place is so context specific. And so when myself and my wife as well, we found this systems and complexity stuff, it just offered a completely different way of looking at why conflict happens, um, why it gets stuck. It was really fascinating. So um, a combination of, of that interest uh, and then visa issues, <laughs> which happens to to us foreigners. Uh, I couldn't stay in the U.S. any longer, and there was a, a little bird on my shoulder that was saying, you need to go out to the real world and do this stuff. Um, you need to go to the field. And uh, I'd been to Myanmar before in 2009. Myanmar is very attractive country uh, it certainly was at that time if you're interested in complex political transitions 135 ethnic groups uh, 21 ethnic armed organizations simultaneous peace process uh, democratization process they hadn't had a civilian government in 50 years economic expansion is incredibly complex fascinating and um, there was this feeling that if you put an effort at that time, that five-year period, uh, or however long it lasts, the whole country and the whole region could transform because the people were so capable, so passionate, and so deserving of a better life. So it was a very attractive place to go, and I managed to convince my wife that we should do that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, off we went. Did you expect to stay for five years? No, and uh, we didn't. We thought that we would have 2015. We went there in 2012. We had 2015 as the goalpost because that was the elections. It would be the first civilian elections um, since the 1990s, which were um, the results were not respected by the by the military. But that was the original goalpost, and then 2015 got there, and it felt like there was still a lot more to do. And uh, so we stayed for another couple of years. Uh, and, um, yeah, we tried to see some more of that transition through, and we're still, well, I'm still working on Myanmar. Um, so I guess it, it kind of, if you stay in a place that long, it kind of affects you a little bit, and we wanted to stay a bit longer. Can you tell us a primer on Myanmar so then we can kind of understand more of how you navigated mm. being there? And it seems like, you know, there's some current news on Myanmar. And so, you know, not that you need to give us a whole kind of um, overview of the whole situation, but just some basics about um, what's happening in Myanmar right now and who the Rohingya people are and kind mm. of what current um, issues related particularly to, well, issues and particularly related to the um, peace building work? Sure, yeah. Uh, so I'll come to the Rohingya in a moment uh, because they are, the, the challenges in the west of the country are highly visible and so we need to address that. But just to take a step back and say a little bit more about the country, I mean, it's incredibly diverse 135 ethnic groups borders 40 percent of the world world's population china and india two very big neighbors geopolitically very important and like a lot of uh countries uh, relatively new countries it suffers this kind of post-colonial legacy and that it was a country that was made after the second world war and it was administered different parts of it were administered differently by the British. They never really, it never really was a homogenous um, 
state or anything representing a state. So Aung San Suu Kyi's father tried to establish a, uh, a union of Myanmar, which is based on a series of promises, or one in particular, to some of the more powerful groups. And, and from one perspective, uh, the perspective I agree with, those promises were never honored. And so you've had this fractious internal conflict ever since. It's the longest running civil war in the world. Uh, and that's the part of the peace building challenge there as you have this um, state really in name only. Uh, you have all of these different power centers throughout the country. That presents a huge challenge for uh, the country and, and they're grappling with, with that. There's a huge level of violence that we don't hear about. So you the Rohingya problems receive a lot of attention, but um, six years, there's been a civil war. It's the most violent time in the country's history, but that doesn't get a lot of press. Um, because a lot of it is so hidden, the country is very inaccessible. Um, none of these things are sounding like positive things for Myanmar, but it really is just a difficult country. Um, the Rohingya uh, challenge um, or is a little bit different. Mm. Um, so a little bit back of background to the Rohingya people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Rohingya people, this is the name that they use to self-identify. They're not known as that by the majority of people in, in Myanmar. The people in Myanmar do not recognize them as an indigenous group to that country. They see them as illegal immigrants from mm. Bangladesh. They call them Bengalis. That word is very is very political. You will not hear Aung San Suu Kyi say Rohingya. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, a lot of those people, I don't want to put a figure on it, but a, a high proportion have been living in the country for multiple generations and under Myanmar law deserve citizenship. But the... One of the biggest challenges is for Myanmar is that there's a, a very high fear of outsiders mm. and particularly Islamic outsiders. There's a concern around Islamification of the country, uh, like has happened in some of the neighboring countries throughout their history. Um, and it's a very proudly Buddhist country for the majority of people that are Buddhist. And that was used, Buddhism was used as a tool to try and create a state mm. as a nation-building tool. And so any threat to that is really opposed. And you see that with this fear that people have about Rohingya and all of these stereotypes that they have mar- far more children and they, um, they force Burmese or Buddhist wives to convert to Islam all of these, all of these uh, misconceptions or these stereotypes around what Islamic people do lead to a lot of fear. And the purge, which you might call, of Rohingya people in the last few months is not is something that's pretty widely supported by the Myanmar population. And that's very much at odds with what we um, or outsiders would think is acceptable behavior and for... Many, they've gone as far as to call it uh, ethnic cleansing, even genocide. It will be before the UN Human Rights Council, I think, next week. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really um, a real turn backwards for Myanmar and what was looking like a transition since about 2011 that was kind of going well mm-hmm. from a sort of bird's eye view. And now it has this very obvious um, negative series of events with the west in the west of the country mm-hmm. it's, thank you for putting some light on the context there and it's uh, a contentious i think yeah and it's helpful to hear this perspective so that we can get a better sense of you know what it means to be a peace builder in this mm. context and so if you can share how were you dealing with these issues and having to navigate within this context Mm -hmm. while you were there or do you feel like it's a more recent emerging thing no it's it's been there for a long time um and it's there's so much to work on in that country uh, that one as a peace builder can focus on many different geographies 
or thematically you can focus quite quite differently. A lot of my work has been around the um, civil war and peace process, which is a different set of people mostly. But that's not to say I haven't done anything in relation to Rakhine. My wife has done a lot. Uh, and I think the first piece of work that she ever did there was systems mapping of the uh, Rakhine conflict. And it's it's fascinating because unfortunately what's happening now happening now was quite predictable so um from a systems perspective so so what happened is in 2012 there were there was an original series of of communal violence incidents um there had been more generations back but the military was not having an iron fist to the same extent so there was actually a lot more of um a lot more communal violence and there's a lot more international attention. Uh, the Rohingya people were put in camps for uh, about 100,000 people for about five years and there was always a perception that they were potential terrorists but it was in ways it was a self-fulfilling prophecy if you can find people to camps for five years and you leave them with no options, no freedom of movement, what do you expect? Um, and a resistance movement uh, started and it was well organized it attacked some police camps and that just gave the military all of the uh, excuse that it needed to start taking care of the of this problem and in, in the way that it has evolved to take care of problems like this so that's another part of it which is really important this is not about Aung San Suu Kyi mm. and that the international attention is on her she doesn't have a lot of power it's about it's about the military. They've always had the power in Myanmar, and they still do. Uh, so, as a peace builder, you navigate that challenge because you can't access the military. Very few people can, but they're the ones that are holding all the cards. Mm. Um, so, you, as a peace builder, you navigate access restrictions. There are parts of the country that are very hard to go to, uh, and that's where most of the conflict is. Um, you navigate political restrictions. You're not allowed to talk to a lot of the most powerful people. Very few people have access. Uh, and then you also navigate a lot of contradictions between how we do peace building or development work and, sorry, development or humanitarian work and how we do peace building. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in humanitarianism, you've got this idea of um, provide based on need. Right, you don't s distinguish between different groups. Uh, so for five or ten years, the international community was giving all of its support to the Rohingya, and still is from the perspective of Rakhine people or other Myanmar people. And so it, it seems very biased, and it's it stokes this grievance that a lot of Myanmar people have that the international community is favoring them, and they're ignoring the the plight of all of the other people. Um, so from a peace building or conflict sensitivity perspective, what the way that they do their work is, is quite problematic in terms of resolving, resolving conflict. So lots of challenges there. It to does do sound that. like <laughs> a very um, just nuanced, like you say, or as you've mentioned, that maybe the systems uh, thinking gives you, gave you a way. You mentioned that before of giving you mm. a way to see kind of a nuanced situation. So I'm wondering mm. how, you know, it does seem very complicated mm. and complex and how that uh, informed your approach and um, whether that in particular or more broadly, mm. your uh, learning from the classroom at SIPA yeah. and, um, you know, I don't want to... Um, draw us away from from understanding the um your work in Myanmar particularly because mm -hmm. um there's so much that you could share about that so if we can focus on that or if you want to go more general about how the sure yeah so I mean I can talk a, a, a couple of things around uh what was really useful from from SIPA um to take over there and work in the field and and then also the some of the systems and complexity stuff in particular uh, i mean what i found really useful um going into a context like that uh was having real uh concrete skills 
some of the things that are most interesting to you when you're studying might be some of the theory or some of the group work that you do but what you call upon the most is some of the or at least we did i think some of the the concrete skills around financial management or project management the experience of doing capstones that stuff you use a lot for planning research projects for managing uh, ngo programs for um, setting up consultancy projects uh, that stuff was really, really useful. And as much as I disliked SEPA's focus on networking and stuff, I mean, that relationships were everything. Uh, so I think that was really useful. Uh, systems, concepts, complexity theory. Um, I mean, we could talk a lot about this. I think that it's only starting to gain traction uh, slowly in the field of, of peace building. I was surprised when... Uh, I first heard in Myanmar of, of uh, NGOs or donors that were looking for that mm-hmm. because when we first went there, we were doing that type of work and we were trying to push it onto them. It wasn't that they were asking for it. Um, but some of the things about it that are really useful is um, you can understand time a little bit better. Or you can understand um, things like uh, potential interventions that might have unintended consequences. And a great example um, relates to Rakhine, actually. It was this idea, and Josephine did an analysis on this, that if you keep on giving all of your resources to the Rohingya people, you're going to exacerbate the sense of grievance that the Rakhine people have, and they're going to keep fighting them. Similarly now, Mm. if your international gaze is fixated upon just the needs of this one group and is reprimanding the Myanmar authorities for not taking care of this group, it just reinforces their belief that the international community doesn't understand, that they're biased, and it's in some ways counterproductive. Now, I'm not saying that it shouldn't happen, you know, that we shouldn't condemn this violence, but systems thinking helps you to see unintended consequences um, and it helps you to see cycles that we might get stuck in. Like, unfortunately, with, with the Rohingya Rakhine issue, we are stuck mm-hmm. in a cycle. And systems uh, thinking helps you to see that. Yeah, I think hearing your perspective on the role of time would be really interesting, especially knowing that you're working for this kind of long-term change, but also in a situation where there's these immediate um, results that are of, of suffering and, yeah. um, you know, real need. And so how do you, um, you know, on a practical level or theoretically yeah. um, keep in mind, especially as an external um, intervener or yeah. peace builder, yeah. How do you keep in mind or understand the role of time? Yeah, uh, it's it's a really interesting question, and it's been a big learning for me because I kind of thought, um, you know, we'd go in there short, sharp, and surgical and fix things. You know, that's kind of the mentality, I think, that some of us have when we go into those contexts. Um, John Paul Lederach, who's a fantastic and famous peace builder, his idea is that it's about 10 years it takes for a transition and a a peaceful transformation of society and it very much depends upon the context Um, but we're not really set up as an international system to do that no donor wants to give you money for more than a year and all of the incentives are set up that they don't want to give out large amounts of money and they want to see results within the first year but change doesn't happen in a linear way change tends to be non-linear and by that I mean that you can put in lots of effort and it can achieve nothing or you can put in lots of effort and it achieves nothing for a while and then it starts to take off Uh, and so you need to have time to lay that foundation to build that base so you can actually start to achieve more and more impact over time. Um, So what I learned over quite a while is that you need to maintain your engagement in a process in a country for much longer than you think and you can't expect that uh, you're going to see really good outcomes from what you do for maybe a year or two into that 
and one of the biggest problems facing peace building as a as an industry right now as a, and it is an industry mm-hmm. uh, is that we don't get enough time and resources to effectively solve problems we get short-term resources to show that we've trained 100 people or 200 people the focus is on quantity it's not on on quality mm. uh, so we need a lot longer do you think um, that these systems um, within the you know with your work with donors and with this community do you see changes and um, do you have tips for aspiring um, peace builders who are maybe new to this field how mm. to manage within that tension and yeah, those challenging for sure for sure um you know for, first a, a bit of a story because i think people in the countries that we're we're working with they understand that these things take time it's just that our architecture of support doesn't get that uh, and i remember this guy Winthane, he's like the third in command of the nld right one of Aung san Suu Kyi's right hand guys and we sat down with him, and the guy that I was working with is a guy called Hannes Siebert. He's kind of an art peace process architect guy. And he was trying to push him to straight after they had the elections to initiate this dialogue series because it had to happen then. And when Thane um, said this, as only someone that's been in prison for 18 years can say, he said, look, if it doesn't work, the, meaning the peace process, if it doesn't work, in this electoral cycle, then we'll try and make it work the next one. Mm. That's five years away. The guy was patient. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't going to be hurried. So for those people, they've got skin in the game, right? And they've already suffered a long time. And their civil war is 70 years old. They don't think that it needs to be fixed in three years, even though that's what our, um, you know, our programming cycles might suggest. But in terms of what, what we do uh, as peace builders, I had this friend, he's actually a photographer, but I think the same thing applies. And I met him in South Sudan in 2011, and he said what he does is he has sort of three countries or projects that he's really passionate about, and he just goes back to them mm. and checks in you know, once a year and keeps the thing moving. And I think that's a really useful lesson for peace builders as well the most effective genuine peace builders that i've met they it's like they start a love affair with a country and they commit to it and they don't they don't fly back out again and wash their hands of it they keep coming back over time so even if your job changes or your funding goes away your effort is maintained because you get more effective the longer you stay or the more you return to that context Mm-hmm. So I mean I think as peace builders we should just we should probably see our roles in that kind of developing country context is if you get involved keep keep involved you know for as long as you can even if you're not living there. That's really useful guidance and I'm thinking about another aspect is you know thinking of your time in the classroom at SIPA and you know did you were you told that when you were in the classroom? You know, this perspective on the relationships you're going to build and how to understand the context or... Um, yeah, did you learn that in the classroom? And secondly, if you're looking back now at yourself, you know, in the halls of SIPA, uh, is there something that you wish you had known then? Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to to hear what you think as well, Meredith, because you you went through the same system of indoctrination. But I think that SIPA was fantastic. I also remember very clearly, did you have Mahmoud Mamdani as a lecturer when you were there? Okay, so he did uh, one class in uh, Conceptual Foundations, uh, which was, you know, the um, for all our listeners, it's the kind of base layer of theory, and you get all of these hotshot lecturers that come in and do one lecture like Jeff Sachs did sustainable development and uh, Richard Betts did something around security mm-hmm. or something. And anyway, Mahmoud Mamdani is fantastic uh, counterpoint to a lot of what we learn at, 
Sipa because he's not really supportive of Western interventionism. Uh, he wrote a book called Save Darfur, which is all about how we should basically get out of Darfur and stop trying to save them. And uh, there was a question time at the end of the lecture, right? And uh, someone got up um, with the exact kind of same naive idealism that I had at that stage and said, you know, as an American, what can I do to help these countries? And I think he quoted Oscar Wilde. I can't remember who it was. And he said, first, tend your own garden. And I was hilarious and it it took a long time to sink in that what he meant was that interventionism and going in with this problem-solving mindset with a a set of tools and thinking that we know better is counterproductive and we can make situations a lot a lot worse so I think to circle back around to your question what did I learn from SEPA or what did um, I not learn. <laughs> I think that I went over to um, Myanmar or any other country with an expectation that um, we should be leading them towards democracy, that there should be civilian control of the armed forces, that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is truly universal and not an instrument of power, and a number of, of kind of pre-assumptions. Some of them are pretty good assumptions, but they don't don't apply, and then it's quite a humbling experience when you realize, as a peace builder, that your job is actually to get out of the way a lot of the time, and to facilitate spaces in mm. which people can have constructive conversations or to provide technical assistance. But you're not there to uh, design their peace process or to make decisions for them, and. To go on to the question of sustainable peace, well, peace is never sustainable if it's externally driven. It has to come from the inside. And I think as as an industry of peace builders, we've forgotten that somewhere along the way. It's refreshing to hear your, your stories and um, insights on this, and especially given that you've, you've just come back. Stephen, could you tell us about kind of your typical day in Myanmar, what was your life like while living there? And how was it different than what you had expected in the SIPA classroom? Okay, sure. Um, And I think that's a great question. You know, when we're in the classroom, it's so hard for us to get a sense of what what are we actually going to be doing? And am I going to enjoy that? Um, I think it helps to think about it in terms of different types of job. Uh, So I'll start with consultancy. I did a lot of consultancy, and that is um, much less structured uh, and more fluid. You might be working from home. You might be working from a cafe. uh, You're motivating yourself. You probably don't have somebody uh, keeping you to deadlines unless you're working for a large consultancy company, and and that's rare. Um, But a typical day might involve you meeting with a client, doing a presentation in the morning. Then you'll go to the cafe. You might have a team. Maybe you've employed a couple of people or maybe you've got a couple of SEPA friends that have gone in with you and you'll reflect upon that that meeting and then you're deciding a research methodology to go out to the field. Uh, Another part of that day, we're at a different day, would be going to uh, a rural area or another city in the country and interviewing civil society members, government ministers, um, people that are engaged in conflict, depending upon what your type of, of uh, project is, and then you're going to be writing reports, mm. and you're going to be presenting those reports, and you're going to be making them look awesome. <laughs> now, that's, that's kind of quite similar, I would say, to a SEPA capstone-type experience, and that's why I think SEPA grads are very good at that kind of stuff. A typical day, if you're in an NGO, uh, is quite different. Um, if you were in an NGO like mine, what you find is that the international staff have a lot of responsibility for things like fundraising, for writing funding proposals, for financial management, for writing reports for donors, for dealing with a lot of donor politics. And then occasionally, much less than you'd like, you'll run a workshop for 
people that actually has something to do with conflict, whether it's a training workshop, whether you're teaching skills in dialogue and facilitation, for example, um, whether you're traveling to uh, a border area to meet with armed group leaders, but probably you're going to have more of an office kind of existence and you're going to ask yourself how did I end up staring at a screen for six hours a day when I went to this place for adventure um, <laughs> that's different than if you're UN or your State Department or something then you are in a formalized institutional space where people wear nice clothes and they go to meetings and everybody pretends that they're quite important but they might be a little bit separated from the real world so you'll be dealing more with internal procedures, bureaucracies, processing of documentation, going to staff meetings, going to coordination meetings with other UN agencies or other governments. Uh, you probably have better dinner parties. Uh, so you get invited <laughs> to residences and stuff and some of that stuff is, is pretty cool. But again, it's the institutional life more so than the out in the field life. And that depends upon the role um, but the suggestion that I would take from all of that is think about when you're at SEPA when you're doing stuff what are the pr not not, not the what are the things that you like to know but what are the things that you actually like to do do you like spreadsheets do you like writing into a computer screen do you like presenting do you like facilitating a workshop and try and think about how, where am I going to get that mix of experiences because you have quite a few different options in the field about the types of jobs and you want to be doing stuff uh, that you enjoy. As one of my former colleagues used to say, don't get good at stuff that you don't like. <laughs> so you really want to focus on the, the type of things that you enjoy. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that very practical. Well, but I should say also, what what else do you experience? Well, I mean, if you're in Juba, um, then you're going to be inside a compound. Uh, and you could say the same for you know, Basra or, or in any number of places with security problems. Um, so you're not going to be able to get outside. And so you might be just hanging out with other international people, uh, getting cabin fever, living inside a shipping crate, and have a very kind of weird social life that revolves around one kind of bar. Um, but hopefully you're not. You're able to have more of an experience mixing with people. Expat dynamics are different in each place, right? So um, <laughs> that's part of your experience, not just your job. To, to move to another point, because we're kind of short on, on time, is you brought up sustainable peace for our listeners. Can you define yeah. this term? What is sustainable peace? I can't define sustainable peace, um, but I can give some reflections on it. Um, and I can point people, there's a lot of resources that I wanted to mention today. So at least let me do one. And it's something I read recently by Cedric de Koning. Uh, his last name is about C-O-E-N-I-N-G. And he wrote a chapter um, on complexity as it applies to peace building. Uh, that should give you enough to Google to find this chapter. It's in a larger volume on uh, complexity that applies to peace building theory and practice. Uh, and he makes some very interesting links between the sustainable peace agenda, which is being pushed by the UN at the moment, has certain characteristics. One of those characteristics is that we need to do more to foster endogenous processes, local processes. Um, and uh, towards sustainability and that makes sense on a basic level right if your peace has to be sustained by outside inputs then it's not very resilient it's not very sustainable uh, but from a complexity perspective that matches with an idea of self-organization healthy systems organize themselves they don't need to have a lot of external inputs and when there are a lot of external inputs it actually disrupts their capacity for systems to organize themselves. So in practical terms, that means if you have a lot of international people running around doing stuff, you prevent that system from learning and evolving and adapting and becoming more peaceful. Um, the other idea is around resilience. So for peace to be sustainable, a society needs to be resilient. It needs to be able to um, avoid shocks. Um, and shocks happen all the time when we were uh, 
implementing the systemic action research process, our program manager got arrested um, and put in prison for six months because it was something that he posted on Facebook. It was totally trumped up charges. He didn't do anything wrong. You have to be able to keep that process going even when you lose key people. And for um, a government, like uh, the lawyer that engineered the position to put Aung San Suu Kyi in the powerful position that he is now was assassinated a few months ago. He was the main legal advisor to some of the most powerful democracy leaders in the country. He's not there anymore. So that political process needs to be able to withstand shocks. Now, if your processes are rigid, they're not resilient. Mm. But complexity approaches and systems approaches tell you to be adaptive, to have a high degree of sensing of your environment and to be able to move quite quickly. Um, so there are certain methodologies that enable you to do that I, I don't need to go into but we'll have to have a part two <laughs> and I mean what you just mentioned the systemic action uh, research methodology would be a great uh, follow-up conversation and sure yeah but um, I didn't mean to to interrupt and I think that hearing you share more about your theory of change uh, for a sustainable peace would be very interesting if you're willing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I don't know if there's any one, one theory of change. Uh, there, there's a f lots of different theories of change, and that's one of the, the key points is we need to be humble and realize that as peace builders we're part of a huge system in which a lot of people have competing theories of change. But a few core things would be that all of the um, action and agency needs to be um, within that society, we've touched a lot on that already, um, that we can't just look at political processes to deliver peace, like peace agreements doesn't equal peace on the ground. You need to think about attitudinal change, um, cultures of discrimination, domination, uh, more, than, more than just politics. Uh, another theory of change would be formalization of institutions. In Myanmar, um, we know about the government behavior and we know about what we can see, but most influential things in the country you can't, you can't see because they're corrupt. Uh, so we need to formalize processes, build institutions so they're strong. I think that's, <laughs> that's probably enough. Uh, <laughs> I know there's a lot in it. So those are good seeds to, to um, take away. And I, I know you have writing on these topics as well. So, um, I encourage our reader or listeners to to look up your your writing on group um, group cohesion and peace processes as well. So I think that's one element that comes up within this. And um, just to come back to the practical level mm. and thinking about the students here at Columbia who are wanting potentially from SIPA or other schools to go into international peace building. Uh, on that path that that you've gone on and um, so if you have any you've mentioned um, some resources already but any guidance for going on that path and particularly yeah. you know with um, wanting to make more peaceful societies but yeah. also needing to get a job after graduation mm -hmm. and just any key kind of uh, tips Absolutely. Um, we all need to pay our student loans and we all need to pay our rent. Uh, totally understand and, and remember and appreciate that. It is useful if we can try to decouple what we are passionate about from what makes us money because we all need money, but the things that we're passionate about and that are most important to do don't necessarily pay. Um, so I encourage people to follow their passions and hopefully someone is going to pay you for that. <laughs> hopefully they're going to pay you enough uh, that you can pay your bills. But passions, first of all, and then find what aspect of peace building makes you most passionate. Is it because you get to hang out with really powerful people and that, that looks kind of cool? Then it's a certain type of peace building. Is it social justice and you just can't abide by the fact that some people don't have a fair, what we'd say in New Zealand, they don't have a fair shake. They don't have, the society doesn't treat them well. Is that what inspires you or is it something else? And then follow that thing. 
I think people don't take enough risks. People say like, how do I go to the field? You buy a ticket, <laughs> you get on a plane and you go there. You don't have to have a job when you go and you know you might have to with your tail between your legs call up you know someone and ask for a funds transfer or you might need to do whatever but go because the best learning is there and you can go and we went in with um, small research grants we kind of masqueraded as people that actually had jobs when we didn't and it enabled us to meet people and get into meetings and stuff like that. But in terms of resources, you probably have all the resources that you read need right now. Just believe in yourself uh, and find out what you're most passionate about and follow that. It sounds like um, also staying informed. You know, I love that you're how encouraging you are to go and jump in. And also, it sounds like um, you know you've seen some successful things happen and taken some innovative approaches in your work and because of you know the learning that you took seriously at SIPA and other things that informed you along the way yeah yeah I mean it's hugely satisfying when it when it works uh, and we worked with a lot of quite young peace builders that uh, most of them hadn't finished university they were living, you know, looking after displaced people, a lot of drugs problems in their communities, and they they grew to be really effective leaders. They mobilized thousands of people. Um, they bought drug awareness raising and mine risk education of thousands and thousands of people, and they did it with just a tiny bit of international support. And to see them grow and what they achieve is so satisfying. Uh, so it can it often doesn't work, uh, but it can work. And I think a really cool thing about students coming out of of this university is that kind of um, you know that idealism and that that hope. You know, you need to have that, um, and there's plenty of it here. So it goes a long way. Thank you so much for for sharing these stories and about your work with us and your motivating and um, <laughs> hopeful um, perspective. And I. I want to give you a chance to include anything else that you'd like to. I think that I would love if you would write a manual for <laughs> peace builders <laughs> going to the field. Um, so I bet you have a lot of other tips you could share, but um, if you wanted to add anything else, otherwise, Bill. Two, I mean, I guess two things. Um, we found a lot of uh, value and kind of trying to embody peace building approaches because we learn all this stuff it's quite cerebral right but peace building is often it's an emotional or it's an embodied process so go and volunteer at the new york peace institute or someone like that experience conflict like experience people shouting at each other uh and and be involved in it that's that's really when you get a feel for peace building so mm -hmm. i think that's really useful um and the other thing that i wanted to say was that um, I'm really keen to connect with people that understand how thinking is shifting in the global peace building world because I'm coming back from the field with lots of frustrations um, but also a few good ideas and reflections about how peace building happens but I've totally missed <laughs> like six years of theory uh, so I want to connect with people that are thinking about systems and complexity and other approaches and innovation and peace building uh, and seeing how some of our experience in the field might match up. So if you're all listening to <laughs> WKCR, right? If yes, you're all out there, complexity peace builders, <laughs> I will leave my details uh, somewhere and you'll be able to find me. Yes, we can include that um, with the well on the WKCR website as well as through AC4 um, our SoundCloud account and other uh, website where this podcast or this conversation will be shared. So that's great. Thank you for willing to, to share your contact and so people can follow up with more questions and maybe we'll have you on the show for a part two at some point in the future. Why not? <laughs> I am more or less unemployed at the moment, so that should be fine. Um, can I list a few resources that might be useful for people? Wonderful. Do we have time? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so if you want to get real news about Myanmar, um, I suggest you read Nikkei Asian Review, N-I-K-K-E-I. -K -K -E -I. 
a lot of the best Myanmar analysts are not that well known outside of Southeast Asia, but they'll give you a real sense of what's happening. People like Ashley South, Mary Callahan, Richard Horsey, um, International Crisis Group, which is also Richard Horsey. Um, I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. Uh, <laughs> is pretty good. Um, Transnational Institute is quite good. The Asia Foundation writes does excellent reports on Myanmar. But just from a news perspective, don't don't listen to what you read on CNN, etc., because you don't really get the the details underneath the surface, and they're the things that matter. Um, I also wanted to point people towards. There's a great word that I learned though, which I think is fantastic. It's called antiambulo, and it's an Italian word, and it means clear the path for people in front of you, or something like that. And that's just a great strategy when you're starting out as a peace builder, because there's a lot of people that are established, and uh, I would get, um, and they can be of a great assistance to you uh, but the approach of a lot of us and I cringe when I read my old emails is to write people like that and ask for stuff <laughs> don't write them and ask for stuff write to them and offer them things offer to help them mm. and support them to succeed and then you rise with them that strategy is called, in, called being an antiambulo um, so that's a really really good one to try uh, I think that's all. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'm taking notes as well. I've learned <laughs> a lot from talking with you and I hope our listeners have as well. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and about the innovative work you're doing in peace building in Myanmar and also thinking globally and bringing systems thinking. And we look forward to sharing this conversation and staying in touch. Thank you, Meredith, for having me. I've enjoyed it. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway. <laughs> <laughs>